Well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to another open air video. Tomorrow will be my last uh, day going through Acts of the Apostles, and uh, tomorrow will be broadcast number 59. And I was calculating that when I finish Acts tomorrow, and uh, please keep me in prayer, I would have accumulated around 30 hours of material. Can you believe? 30 hours. And yet when I was adding up my Matthew, Mark, and Luke studies, those three books combined still fall short of 30 hours. So if you want to get your teeth into some good material, get hold of my axe, download it, and listen to it. You've got 30 hours, or just under 30 hours of material. But the plan will be to record Acts 28 tomorrow, as I say, and that will it, that will be it. I will be finished, that will be the end of Acts of the Apostles, and then a week tomorrow, Lord willing, I start going through Revelation. So this will be my final overview, looking at Acts of the Apostles, and I guess if I was to add my overview videos, and I've made several of these over the last 13 months, you're looking at around 45 hours of material. So again, if you want to get some good material, go to our website, excatholicsofchrist.com and download the MP3s or the MP4s. But for this morning, I'm going to look at some verses from Acts 25, 26, 27, and if I get time, have a quick preview or share with you what I'll be looking at tomorrow from Acts 28. But let's start today, if we may, from Acts 25, verse 11. If I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof, these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Paul is speaking, and here, Paul is upholding the death penalty. If I be an offender, which of course he wasn't, or have committed anything worthy of death, which of course he hadn't, I refuse not to die. And yet many Christians don't like the idea of capital punishment. They think it's somewhat barbaric. And yet some Christians, not all, but some think that abortion is okay. And yet Paul says, if I've done anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die, I'm quite happy to be put to death, which of course, if you cross-reference to Romans chapter 13, and uh, if you cross-reference to the Gospel of John, you've got the Lord upholding capital punishment, you've got the Apostle Paul upholding capital punishment, and here again Paul is saying, I don't refuse to die. But of course Paul wasn't suicidal, he would want to have a chance to defend himself, Look at 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. Have you appealed unto Caesar, the most wicked man in the world? And yet, according to the word of God, he was put there by the good will of the Lord. Have you wanted to, or have you requested to, stand at Caesar's judgment seat? And of course, you know that's what Paul was wanting to do. But this word council has again reared its ugly head. The Council of Trent, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Laodicea, 
Catholic councils, Christians don't hold councils. The nearest we get to a council in the Word of God would be concerning a conference. Acts chapter 15, Galatians chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Friday the 13th, 666. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. You've got two couples found in the book of Acts. The first couple I showed you last time were Felix and Drusilla. And Felix represented the political realm and Drusilla represented the royal realm. A pretty wicked mix. And here you've got, again, uh, royalty partly pictured with the world of politics. Agrippa being the final Herod. There are three Herods in Scripture. And his partner, not his wife, but his partner, a lady called Bernice, which, according to tradition, was his sister, slash consort. And according to tradition, this couple, brother and sister, were in an incestual relationship. And the Word of God doesn't mince its words. It speaks about incest. It speaks about sodomy. It speaks about adultery. It speaks about murder. Because that's what man is all about. Man is wicked from top to bottom. And yet, in spite of that, Almighty God became a man in Jesus Christ to save the world from their sins. So 25.11 down to 13, you've got Paul very much uh, on trial. And Paul about to give a defense of his faith. He doesn't preach the gospel per se, which is somewhat of, uh, somewhat of interest to me although he comes very near to it. And Paul was very calm. Paul wouldn't go in all guns blazing. He wanted to take his time when it came to speaking to this unusual group of people. But jump down to verse 23, please. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and principal men of the city, a Festus commandment, Paul was brought forth, You've got the greatest man that ever lived standing in the presence of this couple that were guilty of incest and on top of that, all of the principal men of the city. So, if you ever feel intimidated when it comes to standing uh, or witnessing to people in your town and community and you feel somewhat out of place, persevere. Because Paul would think nothing of standing in the presence of such wickedness. Look at 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, you see this man, about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. You see this man, this rebel rouser. You see this man, a wicked individual who claims that his king has been raised from the dead. And they would make a bit of a joke about that from 18. How he had certain questions against him of their own superstition, and yet the Romans were very superstitious, as were their Greek predecessors. And yet here Festus is wanting Agrippa to take a look at the Apostle Paul. And he's thinking to himself, how has it got to this? Why am I dealing with this? individual. There are far more important things that I could be doing. But Agrippa 
like Archelaus, like Herod the Great, was intrigued with the Apostle Paul. But if I was to sum up Festus, Felix, and King Agrippa, I would say that you've got a picture here of wickedness. The three stooges, three unclean spirits, and yet this is what God Almighty wanted the Apostle Paul to do. Paul was chosen for service, Acts chapter 9, and part of his calling would be to preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile, which he did, on top of that to suffer greatly. And sometimes we don't want to speak about suffering. I mean really suffering for the Lord. Just look at Turkey, if you will, for one moment. They had an attempted coup last week, and uh, as of this morning, I believe they have arrested over 30,000 people. 30,000 people. And some of those troops have been detained in awful uh, circumstances. And according to the reports that I've been reading, some of those men have been raped. I mean raped. And it's possible that some of those men and women, not all soldiers, some teachers, may be Christians. And therefore they are suffering terribly for their faith. And yet, did you hear anything on the news about this? Did you see anybody outside the Turkish Embassy in London, Paris, or Washington? Of course you didn't. And yet, if Israel was to do something even remotely near this, you'd see people outside the Embassy in Paris, Washington, and London. They'd be calling for resignations, interventions, and yet, because it's not Israel, the world don't seem to care. But I put it to you this morning, that there are saved people in Turkey that are suffering terribly. There are saved people in Iraq and Iran that are suffering terribly. And yet, for the most, we in the West are unaware of it and somewhat indifferent towards it. Jump down to 26. Take a look, if you will, at verse 1, please. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Paul, you've got my permission to speak. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Paul was so diplomatic, and yet when John the Baptist came into the presence of Archelaus, Agrippa's father. He rebuked him. He called him to repent. And as a result, he lost his life. But if you want to find a good example as to what to do, if you would ever find yourself in the presence of your prime minister, your president, your king or your queen, this is where you'd want to go. Paul loved his audience. Paul had a great love for the Gentiles and yet... If you look at Jonah, who was sent to the Ninevites, wicked, unsaved Gentiles, he didn't want to go, and yet the Lord compelled him to go, and as a result, many people got saved. They repented, and yet Paul wasn't compelled to go. Paul wasn't forced to go. He was very much enjoying every moment, and here Paul will take the role, I guess, of a defense attorney. 
he's going to defend himself. And sometimes you can do that if you find yourself on trial. Sometimes you can speak for yourself. But be aware of this, that if you do that, the chances are you will be up against professional lawyers, professional barristers, professional judges, whose uh, job it is to trip you up, to get you to look a fool. So if you want to represent yourself, on the one hand you've got scripture for it, but if you do so, just be aware that it won't be easy. I've got many flies around me at the moment, so forgive me if I look somewhat uh, distracted, but uh, you know me, if I start something, I want to push on. Look at verse 4, please. My manner of life my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, and all the Jews. He's saying this, that I'm known amongst my peers. I'm not some fruitcake. I'm not some lone wolf who's just arrived on the scene. I was raised in Jewry from Jerusalem, from my youth up. I've always been a Jew. Five which knew me from the beginning. That they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee, and I was very proud to be a Pharisee. And I was raised in organized religion. And my father was also a Pharisee. And quite possibly my nephew was also a Pharisee. And you read about him from the previous chapters of Acts of the Apostles. Look at verse 6. And now I stand and am judged of the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Not the gospel, but for the hope made unto our fathers. Unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God, day and night, hope to come. For which sake, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. I'm standing here, King Agrippa and Festus and all of the VIPs and dignitaries, because I am a Jew which believes in the resurrection. And that's true, and yet Paul was very much uh, detained, not just for that, but because he believed and taught that Jesus Christ was a Jewish Messiah. It's almost like this, that he doesn't want to cast his pearls before swine. He knows that he's standing in the presence of wickedness. He's got a couple, a brother and sister, that are living together, and yet the brother is a king. The brother has been put there by the goodwill, of the Lord's uh, foreknowledge, the Lord's sovereignty, and also Festus would be the governor of Judea. So Paul is very respectful. Paul is very diplomatic. Look at verse 8. Why should it be thought, I think, incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Now, he wants to appeal to the hearts of Agrippa. And Agrippa is a very interesting character to assess because it would appear that Agrippa was not only an expert, verse 3, in all customs and questions concerning jury, but also later on in 26, and I'll get there shortly, it would appear that King Agrippa, of all people, actually believed in the Old Testament. Look at verse 9. I've already thought of myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I thought for many years that I would reject Jesus of Nazareth, that I would reject the way, the early church, that I would put him to death, and he did, that I would reject Jesus perpetually, and he did until Acts chapter 9. And yet Paul is very much trying to use Israel's historical standing to plant seeds, if you will. Look at verse 10. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem... 
And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. I had arrest warrants. I was doing what I was doing because I was commissioned to do so. I wasn't doing this off my own back. And this goes back to the Catholic Church for many centuries. They would kill people. I mean millions of people. And today Catholics say, well, that wasn't down to the Pope. That wasn't down to the Cardinals. That was down to the civil authorities. But listen, such people, such uh, tormentors, such torturers, such murderers, didn't do what they did off their own backs. They were following orders from the Catholic Church, the hierarchy. And here Paul is pretty much saying the same thing, that he was following orders from the powers that be, and as a result he was complicit in the death of the saints, verse 10, which concerns those of us which are saved. If you are saved, you are a saint. Nobody makes you a saint. God says you are a saint via the new birth. And it says how he went uh, into the synagogues, verse 11. But before I get to verse 11, verse 10, how he shut up in prison, detained in jails, having received authority from the chief priests. And I mentioned last time that one of the reasons why the Third Reich fell was due to their paperwork. And they made a record of everything and everything and everyone and those that they came into contact with. And that was a fall of Adolf Eichmann. And he was attained by Mossad. And he was flown to Jerusalem where he was put to death some years later. Look at verse 11. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. I compelled those in many synagogues over a period of time to blaspheme, to reject Jesus Christ, to say something derogatory about Jesus Christ. And this is what happened when Nero was in authority. He would be detaining Christians like they do in Islamic countries. And he was forcing Christians, like they do in Islamic countries, to deny Jesus Christ. And some of those people did. I mean, saved people. And I read Fox's Book of Martyrs about a year ago, and I was very humbled to read about those during the Dark Ages that didn't deny the Lord Jesus Christ, that remained faithful unto the death. And yet, there are accounts of some Christians saved Christians, let's not be too pious now, who, when detained by Nero, tortured by Nero, witnessed their families put to death by Nero, denied the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, by my understanding of the Word of God, remained saved. You were told uh, in Second Timothy that it is possible to be a saved person to deny the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet retain your salvation. But I'll say this to you, that if you deny him, and you go to the judgment seat of Christ, you'll wish that you hadn't. And here Paul is giving his testimony. He wants Agrippa to know that he was a fanatic. He was a very angry person for many years, and he wants Agrippa to know that if he could be saved, anybody could be saved. Look at verse 12, please. 
Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, arrest warrants, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. I saw a light at midday, O king, as I was off to Damascus with arrest warrants to detain Christians, saints, saved men and women, boys and girls. And I saw this light shining about me. 14. And when we had fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Soul, soul, why persecutest thou me? It is hardly the kick against the pricks. But look at this. And when we were all fallen to the earth, that's Paul and his traveling companions, I, singular, heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. You take this account and you cross-reference it back to Acts chapter 9, as some people believe that a contradiction has been discovered. No, Paul saw the light along with his traveling companions, and Paul was knocked off his horse with his traveling companions, and they all fell flat on the earth. Either flat on their backs, which would picture John 18, because they were enemies of the Lord, or flat on their face, picturing salvation. But you've got Paul with his companions, all knocked off the horse, all seeing the light, and his companions hear a sound. And this is also cited from John chapter 12, when the Lord spoke to Jesus, and those stood around him said to themselves, did an angel speak to him, or was it thunder? Now they heard a sound, but they couldn't decipher it. And here Paul's companions heard a sound, but they couldn't decipher it because the sound wasn't for them. The sound was a voice with a message specifically for Saul of Tarsus. And this voice is speaking in the Hebrew tongue, which has been suggested by Bible-believing teachers that in heaven we all speak in Hebrew. That's quite likely, I would imagine. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? When you cause somebody who is saved to stumble, when you treat a saved person with contempt, when you afflict a saved person, you are afflicting Jesus Christ because the Word of God tells us how Jesus lives within us. On top of that, the Holy Ghost and God the Father live within us. So when you attack a saved person, you are attacking Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Now, Paul is having a conversation with Jesus in Hebrew. And the word Lord here in Greek is kurios, which is the term for Jehovah, Elohim. But in Hebrew, the word Lord is Adonai. And I've spoken to Jews over the years, and if you speak to religious Jews, they very rarely call God Jehovah, or Elohim, or El Gabor or El Alion, all, he all Hebrew words for the one true God. 
they nearly always call him Adonai, or the Holy One, or the Blessed One. They do so because of their love for him, their reverence for him. And here Paul, within a split second, realizes that he is speaking to deity, and he says, Who are you, Adonai? Which, of course, translated back into Hebrew, he's saying, Who are you, Elohim? Who are you, Jehovah? He knows who he is speaking to, but he's probably in shock to some extent. He spent his whole life trying to serve the Lord, going to the local synagogue, going up to the temple for the feast days. He told you that from six and seven. And now he's in his thirties, he's been knocked off his horse, and he is speaking to his God. What an incredible event. I am Jesus, in Hebrew being Yeshua, whom thou persecutest. And I showed you last time from, I think it's Matthew chapter 18 from memory, that if somebody causes those that believe in the Lord to stumble, the Lord told you that it was better for him to be put to death, put a millstone around that person's neck and be thrown into a lake like this one to my side which is very pretty, and yet there are still flies buzzing around me, so <clears throat> not the best place for me to pick a location to film this morning, but it's been raining, and therefore, if I didn't come here, where else could I have gone? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. So think twice before you treat one of his people with contempt. Look at verse 16. But rise, and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith which is in me, or that is in me. Faith alone, that is in me. The just shall live by faith. Paul, get up, rise. 16, appropriate the atonement, do something. Stand upon thy feet, get ready to go. Fry, not Michael the archangel, not Moroni, not Gabriel, but I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. I've got a, a purpose for you, I've got a remit for you, I've got a ministry for you, I've got a cause for you, to make thee a minister, being a servant, not somebody that wears a dog collar, and a witness, a true witness of Jehovah, not the Jehovah's Witnesses, but a true witness of Jehovah, both of these things which thou hast seen. You've seen me, and yet, according to John 20, blessed are those that haven't seen me, and yet still have believed. And of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. I'm going to appear to you on more than one occasion. Paul, excuse me, more flies. So you're going to get what's called progressive revelation. It won't all be happening here and now. It's going to happen over a period of time to open their eyes because they are spiritually dead before they are saved, spiritually blind 
dead from the neck up and to turn them from darkness to light. You can't sit on the fence, you need to make a decision. And from the power of Satan unto God. Before you get saved, you are a child of Satan. He is your spiritual father, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. So the offer has been made, but again, you've got to receive it. You've got to help yourself. You have to appropriate the atonement. An inheritance among them which are sanctified, set apart by faith. That's the key word. No works involved. That is in me. Salvation is in a person, not a place. 19. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. I wasn't sitting around twiddling my thumb like Joseph Smith did when he claimed to have seen God the Father <coughs> and some others, which of course you know from, uh, I think it's 2 Timothy, chapter 6 is impossible. Nobody has seen God the Father yet, but you will in eternity if you're born again. But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles. So he goes to the Jews, first of all, because they are the Lord's people, and then to the Gentiles, the heathen, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. The Gentiles were very superstitious, worshipped many gods, and therefore it was imperative for them to repent change their minds, change their hearts, be sorry for who they are and what they are. And the same is true for today. You should be sorry for who you are and what you are. But that's not enough. You need to then turn to God in faith. And the last part of this piece of scripture says, to do works meets for repentance. Keep your hand there and go to Matthew chapter 3. And now Calvinist friends come along and those that hold to lordship, salvation, and they attack faith alone, and they say that you have to turn more of your sins to be saved, which is impossible, or they say that you have to stop sinning in order to be saved, which sounds very nice, but how do you know if you stop more of your sins in order to be saved? And this type of language, do works meet for repentance, is cross-referenced back to Matthew chapter 3, concerning John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, take a look please. Uh, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Are you really interested in what I'm preaching? Is your heart right? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat, repentance. I think not to say in yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Do works, meet, repentance. Meaning this, stop trusting in yourselves. Stop trusting in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Stop boasting about being the chosen race. Stop trusting in Mary, the Mass, or Muhammad. Stop trusting in religion and start trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it, that's what it means, in a nutshell, to do 
Works meet repentance. Quit trusting in others and start trusting in the one true God. There's no works involved. You stop doing something and you turn around. Go back to Acts 26, please. Acts 26. That they, verse 20, should repent. Be sorry for who you are and what you are. Have an about turn and head off in the direction of God. And do works meet for repentance. Humble yourselves in essence, because this is a heart problem. Your mind can, to some extent, comprehend what is being spoken about here. You know, if you are honest with yourself, that you're no good, that you fall short of your own standards on many occasions. And therefore, sooner or later, you will need a substitute. You need somebody to do something for you. And I've used this analogy many times over the last few weeks and months, and I'll use it one more time, that <coughs> if you were driving down the motorway and your tyre blew out and you were forced to pull over into the hard shoulder and somebody drove down the motorway or the highway, as it's known in America, or the, or the uh, Autobahn, as it's known in Germany, and say, hey friend, can I help you out? You would say, thank you so very much. Let's call you a fool. But the chances are you say, thank you very much for your help. And that person will get out of the car <coughs> and help you change your tyre, help you change your wheel, or maybe even give you their own wheel, their own tyre, if they could. Only a self-righteous, pompous individual would say, no thank you, I'm going to stay put and try and fix this myself. On top of that, you may have children in the car, it may be dark, it may be wet, it may be cold, you want to get home, and therefore, wouldn't you take a helping hand? Of course you would. Well, this is what salvation is all about. Almighty God reaches out and says, grab my hand, you're sinking, you're drowning, like this stream beside me, you can't swim. I will save you, I will rescue you. And you say, no thank you Lord, I'm going to trust in my good works, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust, <coughs> excuse me, in the mass. I'm going to trust in my own good works. I'm going to trust in evolution to be true. I'm going to hope it's true. I'm going to trust in socialism. And the Lord says, okay, you are a fool. When you die, my son will judge you. And if you're not like he was, if you're not sinless like he was, woe be unto you. <coughs> 24. And as he thus spake for himself, Fetter said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. Paul's message went right over the head of Festus. On top of that, Festus says with a loud voice, now watch it, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. All this Bible reading has made you mad. But this term, loud voice, makes me wonder if Festus was demon-possessed. Because those that were demon-possessed in the New Testament on many occasions would speak with a loud voice. Those that were spirit-filled 
would also speak with a loud voice. Or maybe he's just wanting to ridicule him, make him look like a fool in the presence of Agrippa and Bernice and others. Maybe he is convicted, like Felix was. Look at 25. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness, diplomatic, very articulate, unlike John the Baptist. I'm not mad. I'm not a fruitcake. I haven't lost my mind. Yes, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. But of course, if you're not saved, this message will go right over your head. Look at 26. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom I also speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. Unlike the Freemasons, the early church were very visible. They weren't hiding away in a corner. And he's now appealing to the king, being Agrippa. Look at 27. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. This is fascinating. King Agrippa, you are a wicked man. You are having an ancestral relationship with your sister slash consort. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe the Old Testament? The Jewish Tanakh? I know that thou believest. Remarkable. Look at 28. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul, I'm on the cusp of becoming a Christian. Paul, you've almost persuaded me to get saved. Paul, you put me on the spot in the presence of Festus and co. Look at 29. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. No limited atonement here. No suggestion of being chosen in eternity past. He's saying, I would to God that not only you, would get saved, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am except these bonds. Paul is saying this, that if you want to be saved, you can be saved, your majesty. On top of that, Festus, the governor of Judea, and Bernice, the king's lover slash consort, and the nobles, and the VIPs, if they wanted to, could be saved as well. There's no limited atonement. And I'll say this, that if you are wanting to be saved, you can be saved. But you've got to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, repentance, believe on him, trust in him. There's no works involved. <clears throat> and the last part to 29, accept these bonds. In other words, I want you to be saved, your majesty, and yet I don't want to see you being bound, put in chains. And of course, that is fair enough, but the truth of the matter is this, that Agrippa was in chains, spiritual chains. He was bound to sin. And until you get saved, you too are bound to sin. You are born in sin. You are a slave to sin. And even after you get saved, if you're not careful, that sin can... Uh, hold you back, can stop you from pushing forward and doing great things for the Lord.
jump over to 27, please. <coughs> Look at verse 9. <coughs> now much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already past, Paul admonished them. I said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only for the lading and ship, but also of our lives. This is the first warning given to Paul, to those that have boarded a boat en route to Rome. And this boat is a picture of one salvation. This boat is a picture of the vessel, the ark, that gets a sinner saved. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which are spoken by Paul. There's a picture of rejection. You've got your religion. You've got your beliefs. I've got mine. So 10, spiritually speaking, pictures the offer of salvation. 11 pictures one's rejection of it. 21, but after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. There's a second warning to get saved and I guess this could be cross-referenced to the book of Revelation where the apostles are going to stand with Jesus Christ in a sense, as adjudicators. And they will see people that they spoke to during their lifetimes, and maybe we too, as the redeemed, will be there as adjudicators. And we will say to such people before they go to hell that we told you, we witnessed to you. We did videos such as this, with insects flying all around. We stood in the sun, in the rain, in the snow. We went door to door. We tried to get people saved and yet you laughed in our faces. 22, and I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. Stay in the ship, stay in the ark, abide in Christ. But 22 is a great picture of amazing grace, for there shall be no loss of any man's life, once saved, always saved, but of the ship. The ship is going to crash. And I'm going to say this, that the ship is a picture of the old man. The ship is a picture of you trying to do religion instead of relationship. 23. And it stood by me this night, the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God, had given thee all them that sail with thee. This is almost mirrored from John chapter 17, when Christ would say that those that the Father had given him, he hadn't lost any of them. Now that is concerning the apostles for their salvation, but also for their service. Of course, Judas would be one that would betray the Lord. But 24, 23, an angel of God, being Jesus Christ, referred back in the Old Testament as a Christophany, whose I am and whom I serve. What a great thing to say. I belong to him. I serve him. 
It says, Fear not, Paul. Thou must be brought before Caesar, a type of the Antichrist. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Now, in the context, this is concerning their lives, not their souls. From my reading of the Word of God, this group of individuals didn't go on to get saved. We're not told that anyway. Now, you want to say they did, okay, fine, but you're going to have to argue from silence. But John 17, one final time, <coughs> does picture this in the sense of the apostles being chosen specifically for service. And yes, I know some people think that is in reference to one's salvation, but if you read Luke 6, you were told that Christ prayed all night before he chose the apostles. They weren't chosen from eternity past. For I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Paul was a Bible believer. And therefore, you too can trust what you read in Scripture. Look at 26. Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. This is apostolic foreknowledge. And this island is Malta, 28.1. And here Paul is still receiving visions. Paul is still very much aware of supernatural events. And yet when he wrote Galatians chapter 5, he would say that there were people that were deceiving the Galatians. And he wasn't sure who they were or where they were. And he says, whoever they are, whoever they are, I wish they were cut off. Which, of course, is a term for death. So he has lost his absolute knowledge by Galatians chapter 5. And yet, Acts chapter 5, Peter had apostolic knowledge. So you got two things there. you got Peter, still very much receiving apostolic foreknowledge. And yet, by Galatians chapter 5, Paul has lost it. He no longer has such a blessing from the Lord. And that also shows that the gifts are starting to recede. 31, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Unless you get born again, unless you trust in the Son of God, you can't be saved. This is a type of Christ. And that's why Christ is exclusive. Salvation is exclusive. You can't be saved any other way. I don't care if you're a Muslim, a Catholic, a Jew or Buddhist. You can't be saved any other way. 34. Wherefore I pray you to take some meat. For this is for your health. For there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. Once again, Almighty God has guaranteed their survival. And here Paul wants them to take food to keep their strength up. So 27 is a clear picture of the ark being a type of our salvation. We board it. On top of that, I will say this, that this could also be a picture of those that go into the tribulation and get saved in the tribulation and go through the tribulation, like Noah's ark back in the Old Testament. Look at 43, please. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim to cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. 
I assume that Paul could swim. I assume that Dr. Luke and co could swim, but the centurion has stepped in, no doubt due to the Lord softening his heart and has kept Paul from being killed along with the prisoners. And they all make it safely to land. And if I was to spiritualize the last part of 44, and they escaped all safe into heaven. And they escaped all safe into the millennial kingdom. And they escaped all safe to the judgment seats of the Lord. Jump over to 28, verse 3, please. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. Satan tried to sink the boat from 27. And of course, Leviathan, back in the Old Testament, is affiliated with water. And Leviathan, of course, is a term for Satan. And here Satan has tried to kill Paul. For and when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hanging his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. Even pagans knew the difference between right and wrong. And sometimes people say to me, How about those in faraway lands? Are they going to go to hell when they die? Well, those in faraway lands know just as much as you know. The Ten Commandments are in their hearts. They have a conscience like you do. And therefore they will be judged on what they knew. So don't worry about those in a far off land. Worry about yourself. Look at verse 5. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. He should have died, of course, but Mark chapter 16 promised that such people would take up snakes and not die. Verse 6, howbeit they looked when he should have swollen, or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while, and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds, and said that he was a god. Superstitious, of course, ignorance, of course, and yet the point of these verses is to demonstrate again that even ignorance, heathen, living in faraway lands who haven't yet come into contact with the light found from the previous chapter, 26, 17, 18, know more than you think they know. And that's why whoever you are, wherever you are, you can't hide behind those in faraway lands or use those people as an alibi not to believe the gospel. Because they have light as you have light. And if they respond to that light, Almighty God will send somebody to further articulate the gospel to them, like Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. Look at verse 8, please. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed, and laid his hands on him and healed him. The Jews couldn't do this. It would take the apostle Paul, and I think... This fever, from verse 8, if I cross-reference it back to verse 3, and also to verse 2, which I didn't read, because of the present rain, and because of the cold, I say this, that Satan was very much busy in Malta, plaguing people through diseases and sicknesses, so on and so forth. 
And therefore, it would take the Apostle Paul to do this healing, which would be his last healing. Look at verse 9. So when this was done, others also which had disease in the island came and were healed, who also honoured us with many honours. And we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. They received gifts. And yet, if you go back to the Old Testament, you read about Elijah, uh, healing Naaman, I think it was, of his leprosy. And the servants of Elisha wanted to receive a reward, a gift. And Elisha said, no, keep your gifts, keep your rewards, I'm not interested. And of course, his servants, as you know, went after Naaman, lied to Naaman, and said that Elisha now wanted those gifts for some of his traveling companions, some of his associates, so on and so forth. And Naaman, ignorant of the deception, gives the gifts to his servant, who goes back to the house, is challenged by Elisha, lies to Elisha, and the leprosy goes from Naaman to the servant. But here, Paul and co. think nothing of receiving gifts and such things as were necessary. And I will say this, that to those of us which have ministries, to those of us which do what we do, we too can receive gifts if, it is warranted, but I don't think we should be asking for gifts. I don't think we should be asking for donations. I don't think we should be asking for those to tithe. I don't care for that. I've never cared for that. But if somebody wants to send a gift, if somebody wants to send a love offering, as they refer to it, then you have the right, you have the privilege to receive it if you so choose, but if you don't, that's fine as well. Let it be a matter of one's conscience. Jump over to 23, please. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. That is apologetics. And here Paul is going to preach to the Jews. Although he was sent to the Gentiles, when he got a chance, he would preach to his own people. Look at 24. And some believe the things which were spoken, and some believe not. You're saved by believing, and you are damned by not believing. On top of that, here's a good picture of free will. 25. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive, for the hearts of this people is wax gross, and the ears are dull of hearing, and the eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. This was foretold back in the Old Testament, that jury would reject the Messiah, much like they had done to their prophets, 
So you've got a picture here of a curse on Israel put on them by Almighty God, and yet, 28, and I'll close, be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. So the door gets closed on jury, and again, the Jews reject the Lord, and from Acts 28 up until 1948, the Jews wander. They are persecuted, they are put to death, they are despised, mocked, ridiculed, and up until 1948, they are a dispersed people. But after World War I and World War II, the Lord puts them back in the land. And they will stay in the land until Christ comes back. So, there you are, pretty uh, substantial overview, I hope, from Acts of the Apostles. And please excuse me for having to keep... Uh, dusting the flies off from me, but uh, when I came here earlier on, I thought it would be a good place to make this message from, but I had no idea so many flies, whatever they are, would be buzzing all around me and trying to eat me. <laughs> Acts 25, just a quick recap, and I will conclude this message. Acts 25, 11 down to 13, Paul upholds the death penalty he stands in the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, which again has nothing to do with Bible believers, but unsaved, hostile Jews. On top of that, he comes into contact with King Agrippa and Bernice, his lover slash sister slash consort, a wicked union. And yet Paul doesn't pull him up for that. He doesn't deal with that particular sin. He gets down to business and he speaks about the resurrection. 23, down to 24, you've got Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and others standing in the presence of Paul, hearing him preach about Israel <coughs> and the resurrection. And Festus is somewhat puzzled about the Apostle Paul. 26, 1 down to probably 20, Paul is going to defend himself. He's going to give a defense of what he believes and why he believes it. And seeds were no doubt being planted. Almighty God was being glorified by his great child witnessing to this wicked group of reprobates, unsaved, heathen. And Paul says, listen, before I got saved, I was detaining the saints save men and women, and I was complicit in their death. I punished them, and I forced them to blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ. I forced them to deny him, being exceedingly mad against them. And I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Paul was a fanatic. Paul was like, can I say, Muhammad, before he was saved. And yes, he did it in ignorance, but nevertheless, he was on the wrong side of the Lord, the wrong side of history. He goes to Damascus with authority and commission, verse 12, from the chief priests, arrest warrants, detention orders. He wasn't some renegade doing his own thing. He wasn't just an ordinary renegade. He was a Jew 
in organised religion commissioned by the powers that be. Around midday or at midday, I saw in the way a light from heaven and the light of the world. And yet Michael Jackson thought nothing of making a song, writing a song, making a music video, and he would say that he was the light of the world. And yet that man died through drug intake, drug overdoses. In fact, I saw a documentary about Michael Jackson that he couldn't even sleep. He had to be knocked out by his doctor. He had to be sedated by his doctor every night to sleep. The good and the great can't sleep. Judy Garland was the same. She couldn't sleep. You gain the world and yet lose your own soul. But at midday, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, S-U-N, which is a type of the Son of God, shining round about me and then which journey with me. We all saw this light, your majesty. And when we were fallen to the earth, either flat on your back as an enemy of the Lord or flat on your face in reverence to the Lord, I heard a voice, not them, I heard a voice speaking unto me for your eyes only, need to know, and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hardly the kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? Who art thou, Adonai? Who art thou, Kulios? Who art thou, El Alion? Who art thou, Elohim? You get the picture? This is speaking about Jesus' deity. I am Jesus, I am Yeshua, whom thou persecutest. If you pick on one of my children, if you cause one of my children to sin, to stumble, to blaspheme me, to deny me, it were better for you that you were drowned in the depth of the sea. 16, but rise, get up, stand upon thy feet. I've made you a minister, a servant, to be a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. You're going to go to the Gentiles, open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan. He's got you. You are his until you're born again. That they may receive forgiveness of sins all of your past, present, and future sins and inheritance from among them which are sanctified, made holy, exonerated, declared righteous by faith. That's the word to get down. That is in me. Salvation is in a person, not a place. Salvation is offered to everybody, but you've got to receive it. You've got to help yourself. 20. I went to the Jews in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, finally to the Gentiles, and I told them that they should repent and turn to God. Stop believing in many gods, start believing in one God. And do works meet for repentance. Humble yourselves. Stop being so prideful. Stop trusting in your church your rituals, your mosque, 
Kingdom Hall, the Steakhouse, the Temple, the Lodge. You get the idea? And do works meet for repentance. Quit those things. Stop trusting in those things. Stop trusting in evolution. Turn from those things and get saved. There's no works involved. I can't stress that enough. 24 down to 29, Festus speaks with a loud voice, maybe demon-possessed, or maybe just wanting to make Paul look a bit of a fool. And Paul's very calm. He doesn't rise to the bait. He says, no, I haven't lost my mind. I'm not mad. I know exactly what I am saying, what I'm doing. I'm very much in the will of the Lord. <coughs> 26, for the king, being a gripper, knoweth of these things. This is so interesting to read. His father put John the Baptist to death. His father detained the Lord Jesus Christ. His grandfather put the innocents to death in Bethlehem. And this man is having a sexual relationship with his own sister. And yet Paul says, Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And yet this king from history didn't get saved. He wasn't prepared to bend the knee. He wasn't prepared to be numbered with the Lord's people. 28, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You've almost persuaded me, Paul. You've brought me to the cusp of being saved. And yet the price is too high to pay. Getting saved is straightforward enough, but living for the Lord is tough. It takes a real man to live for the Lord. I saw a quote a few weeks ago from a well-known American boxer. I think it was George Foreman, but I might be wrong. And if it was George Foreman, he was the heavyweight champion of the world. And I don't follow sport, but I believe that in his day he was something special. I guess like Mike Tyson, or Chris Eubank in the UK, or Nigel Benn in the UK, middleweight champions, I believe, top boxers in the day. But Foreman said that it takes a real man to be a Christian, and I believe that he professes to be saved, and I concur with that. It takes a real man to be a Christian, but for Agrippa, he couldn't make the commitment, he couldn't get saved. For 29, completely kills, limited atonement. I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. You could be saved, your majesty, if you wanted to. Christ died for your sins. You could be saved, Mr. Governor, if you wanted to. Christ died for your sins. You could be saved, Miss Bernice, if you wanted to, Christ died for your sins. But the problem is, one's self-righteous nature. <coughs> People, before they are saved, want to do something in order to get saved. And you can't do that, my friends. You've got to take his righteousness, you've got to come his way, or don't bother coming at all. 27, 
9 to 11. Paul is on a ship, on a boat, going through rocky waters. An old Leviathan, the devil, is trying to sink the boat, trying to kill Paul and co. Because Paul is going to write half the New Testament. And that boat is a picture of the ark. And you need faith to board a boat. You need faith to board a plane. You need faith to board the Lord Jesus Christ. Get in, put your seatbelt on, sit tight, and yet 11. No, the centurion, believe the master and the owner of the ship. I'm going to believe my biology professors, my chemistry professors. I'm going to listen to my parish priest, my local vicar, my imam, my local rabbi. I'm not going to listen to what you people say, you fanatics. 21 down to 24. The second warning is given by Paul and a promise that if you board the boat, if you board the ark, God will keep you safe. He will preserve you. Eternal security, perhaps. 25 down to 26. Paul is a Bible believer. For I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. And yet, if you are a Bible believer, people think you are a fanatic, a fruitcake. And if you tell people that you are a Bible believer and don't live it, they call you a hypocrite, right? You can't win either way, can you? But 26, Paul is still receiving absolute knowledge, apostolic foreknowledge. He is still very much aware of uh, future events. And he will make it clear that this island where they are heading to is awaiting them. But go back to my earlier comments from Acts 5. Peter knew what was going on. Here, Paul knows what is going on. And yet, Galatians chapter 5, Paul doesn't know what is going on. Paul doesn't know who these false teachers are or were. And yet, Peter knew about that couple and an ice and fire, Max 5, how they were lying, conspiring together. 31, 34, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Unless you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. 34, take some food, refresh yourself, read the word of God. For there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. Once saved, always saved, absolutely. 43, down to 44, the centurion is aware that the officers are wanting to kill Paul and the prisoners. And he steps in and says, no, you won't do that. The Lord has put it on my heart to protect Paul. He is a chosen vessel. He's something special, which again pictures one's security in Christ. Take a look at uh, Romans 8.28 if you need to. How all things are working together 24-7 for good to those that love God. So you can't <clears throat> ever fall out of the will of the Lord. You may backslide, and yet even when you backslide, the Lord can still use that his own glory. 28.3 down to 6 a viper, a serpent, a snake has bitten Paul and of course it has got to be the devil surely and the barbarians are watching Paul waiting for him to die because when a snake bites you you die but on this occasion the snake doesn't die, excuse me Paul doesn't die, the snake is thrown into the fire and is consumed, a picture of the devil being thrown into the fire and burning, Revelation 
chapter 20. And after observing Paul for a picture of time, they think to themselves, this man isn't a murderer, he's a god. And they make the mistake, like the Catholics do, that when the priest holds up the wafer, it becomes the body of Christ, and they genuflate. They go down on their knees. And they believe that the Pope is Christ's vicar. And yet, when was the last time you heard this Pope, or any Pope, ever, preach the Gospel? How about never? Eight down to ten. A leader called Publius is sick of a fever, like Peter's mother-in-law was back in the Gospels. And Jesus rebuked that fever. And here Paul steps in lays his hands on him and heals him. And I believe the devil was afflicting this individual because he was on the cusp of getting saved. As a result of this healing, Paul's last healing, all those that had diseases came to be healed and were healed. And yet Paul was almost blind around this time, couldn't see, nobody was healing Paul. Timothy was suffering from ulcers. Nobody was healing uh, Timothy of his ulcers. Trophimus was sick unto death. And nobody healed Trophimus. It would be down to the Lord to step in and heal Trophimus. 23, Paul speaks to the Jews, testifying from morning till evening about the Lord Jesus Christ. I would have loved to have seen that, just to sit at the feet of Paul, making notes. 24, some believed the things which were spoken and some believed not. That's what will save you, your belief, and that's what will condemn you, your lack of belief. 25, Paul realizes that prophecy is being fulfilled in his presence and he quotes Isaiah concerning the fathers being Israel, how they would see and yet not see, how they would hear and yet not believe. And that was what the Lord would speak about back in the Gospels. For their heart is wax gross. They cannot see or hear. And they won't be converted in order for the Lord to heal them. But 28, and I will close in 28. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, the heathen, the nations. And they will hear it. And I would say that probably from Calvary, and to the end of the millennium, billions of people have got saved. Gentiles. And yet 29, 30, 31, the Jews once again reject Jesus. And they wander in the wilderness for nearly 2,000 years up until 1948. So tomorrow, Lord willing, join me as I go through Acts 28. And hopefully my voice won't be so dry. It's amazing how dry it is. And I will give a much more detailed verse-by-verse reading from Acts 25. But I'll just jump out of camera shots and show you this stream. That is behind me. And it looks somewhat murky to me, don't you think? It's almost like blood. It's almost like the blood of Christ, which is what saves us. But it's also... A picture of sin. In fact, it looks very murky to me. A picture of our state before we got saved. 
But uh, this hopefully has served for my message this morning. Far too many insects buzzing around me. But uh, you know me, if I start something, I persevere on until the end, until I complete the project at hand. So join me tomorrow, please, for my final reading from Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 28. And if you want to go back to the archives, you've got nearly 30 hours of material to dip into, to listen to, to get a great blessing from. If I can do Revelation in six months, that'll be good. Although I won't set myself a deadline. I thought initially I could do Acts in 12 months. It, it fell to 13 months. I lost a couple of Sundays due to circumstances outside of my control. So I probably could have finished had I wanted to within my 12-month time scale. But 13 months was okay. 13 months was sufficient. And that will give me 59 broadcasts, 30 hours of material. And I think you've had enough for today. So I'll just spin the camera around one last time to this somewhat murky stream. Get a close-up on it close-up of it, I should say, and wish you every blessing, every happiness, every joy in our blessed Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll speak to you next time. God bless you and Maranatha.